Hello and welcome to this episode of DIT ON, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie, and today's episode is on the Falklands War, as this year is the 39th anniversary of the conflict. Today's guest is Jonathan Jonty Powis. Welcome to the podcast, Jonty. Well, nice to be here. Thank you. So for those of you that may not know Jonty, and I'm sure that's very few, um, Jonty served in the Royal Navy for 32 years. He left as a commander in 2006. He joined in 1974 and joined the submarine service in 78. He became a navigator in 1981 and joined HMS Conqueror. In 86, he passed his perisher course and was XO of Resolution. He was then went on to be CO of HMS Unseen, Resolution and Victorious. Upon leaving the Royal Navy in 2006, he joined Rolls-Royce to lead the development of the new submarine rescue system. Welcome, John T. So we'll dive straight in. Um, we've, got, we've got a lot to cover today, and I know we've only got, got an hour together. So I just want to start off in 1981. You were, I believe you were in MOD, and you had a phone call from the appointer asking you to join Conqueror. Yes, I, I, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a back's tale to that as well. I mean, I... I had left my first submarine in order to do navigators, uh, an O-class submarine navigating course. Mm. And about halfway through that, I was rung up and told that um, a friend of mine had broken his leg and I was required an HMS Scepter. Um, and I, I went and did a, a sneaky patrolling Scepter as the fifth hand, which was always a, a fun activity. Um, fun with a capital F too and when I returned they, there wasn't a course I couldn't rejoin the course straight away so I was I was given a sort of a make work type job in the Ministry of Defence where I was sat in an office with a very avuncular um, uh, submarine uh, commander uh, he was actually an instructor officer and while I was there, the phone rang and uh, it was the appointer who asked me if, if I wanted to go and be a navigating officer. Uh, and, you know, we always thought you wanted to be a navigator, John T. Well, actually, at the time, it, it, navigating a diesel boat was only like a step. And I hadn't really thought about it. So I said, well, actually, I don't. Um, I rather fancy being a sonar officer. I think that surprised him a bit. And he put the phone down and the, uh, the commander looked across the desk at me and said, what have you just done? And I, and I felt a bit guilty and I told him and he said, oh, well, you know, being navigator of an SSN, you're getting there early, surely. And I was just about to pick the phone up. He said, no, don't ring him up now. Wait 10 minutes. So he thinks you've thought about it. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, and then it's sort a of change of mind, which was good advice because that's exactly what happened. And I, I found myself very quickly uh, in HMS Mercury. Um, with a bunch of people I'd already known quite well. In fact, that that team, oh, there were eight of us on the course. I was the only one to go to an SSN. Mm. But of that eight, there were four of us all on the same parisher and the same ACs course when we became, you know, before we went to second in command. Mm. Uh, and we're still chums all these years later. Amazing. So you, so you went through that and then you joined Conqueror, was it in May? 81? Yeah, I joined Conqueror in May, and I, I have to say, I, I struggled for the first six months. You know, I'd, I'd accepted this sort of early advancement uh, with alacrity, you know, eventually, and I was perhaps a little bit too inexperienced. However, I, you know, after six months, 
Well, that's it's one of the things they say about you know, when when you get your first sort of important jobs in the navy, you tend to do. Uh, it, it, it tends to come in six months chunks. The first six months, uh, you struggle to understand what it is you're supposed to do. Then you spend six months doing the job okay, uh, six months doing it really well, and then six months preparing to hand over to somebody else, which was pretty much my experience. Mm. Yeah, I think mine's the same with all my jobs as well. But you made it through the first year. Yeah, so indeed. May 51, uh, 81 rather, I joined. Yes, I mean, we, we headed south early April, 82. Yeah. Uh, so you were at the stage where you were good at your job. You know, you'd gone past all of the... Well, it, certainly. Yes. And then the demands and the sort of the dawning or the realisation that we were actually doing something completely unexpected and actually doing a shooting war. Um, that's really That's really what made the whole thing the whole boat tick and in my presentations i you know i refer to the uh, the difference between the trip south and you know the the events prior to the belgrano where you know we found ourselves confronted with an argentine submarine which actually i mean there's, there's a bit to be told here because you know all the way south the the the, the very strong feeling was that you know the, the Navy's in decline, you know, the post-imperial retreat and you know, the uh, relative impoverishment of the country under the previous government of uh, Wilson and Callaghan really meant that we didn't think that the politicians had any stomach for it. Mm. And you know, we got all the way down to South Georgia. We, we were redirected towards South Georgia. And around the same time we first sighted South Georgia, we detected a submarine, mm. classic submarine signature, uh, two pens high, uh, with a reasonable bearing rate. We thought it was close. Uh, there was diesel on the signature as well. So we rushed up, well, we stood the watch to rush up the periscope depth, uh, captain in the control room, all that sort of, not quite at action stations, but bloody nearly, looking for the submarine. Mm. And we couldn't see it. And we, we came very shallow. We stuck the whole fin out of the water with the attack periscope raised. So that's a height of eye of, I don't know, 40 something feet and nothing in sight. And so we went deep again and lost the signature. Mm. And we thought we would regain it. So we, we went deep, short sprint to sort of get beyond it, then turn around and illuminate with active sonar, thinking that we would suddenly find it but no we, we just we never regained contact but you know I, I subsequently met with the navigator of that submarine and uh, that was quite interesting because actually the submarine was on the surface it was an old world war ii modernized world war ii submarine so four diesel engines 20 plus knots on the surface and they were sprinting along the surface uh in order to get into south georgia so we were looking in the wrong place and indeed, they dropped off their troops and supplies and they were attacked and very badly damaged on the way out. Uh, hence, this submarine, the Santa Fe, had to go back in and beach itself. It was in a sinking condition. It was an interesting day because it absolutely changed the mood on board. And it was, it was like drawing the curtains and suddenly seeing the light. There we were you know, with bow caps open ready to shoot 
knowing that if he had seen us, he might well have popped off at us as well. And there we were in a real live submarine up against a real live submarine that could have shot us and we could have shot him. And I, I can't say that on the way south we were casual, but it, that sort of air of, well, this is, you know, we're, we're going to turn around soon when the politicians go to surrender stations. And of course they didn't. And uh, we sharpened up very quickly because this is only what, a week or so before the sinking of the Belgrano. And it wasn't the only occasion when we, you know, we, we, we came across enemy ships, but it was what completely kicked us off into being a taut and competent and diligent team, as opposed to uh, slightly suspicious of government. It's quite important to remember that at this time, the Navy had gone through a very bad phase indeed. All through the 70s, the the relative value of our salaries had diminished against that of industry. I remember this is a, there was a time when uh, inflation in the country reached nearly 30%. I remember as a sub-lieutenant, uh, you know, if, if I, well, I, I did live with a, a girl who was briefly my fiance, and actually when I inquired about it, I was entitled to supplementary benefit, which I thought was, a, was rather strange for a naval officer, albeit a junior one. But that's the way the world was. And the Navy was cut by one-seventh just at the end of 1974, you know, my first uh, exposure to the Navy. And we found an awful lot of us struggling to pass the exam because they changed the, the pass mark from 60 to 80% in some of the Dartmouth exams. Uh, and a lot of guys just found themselves shed, which was a which was a surprise, I suppose. And the not uh, under the Conservatives, the 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 cuts that John Knott, the uh, Minister of Defence or the Secretary of State for Defence, had initiated, which would have led to uh, the the last two carriers, which at the time was Invincible uh, and Hermes, uh, and I suppose Bulwark, although she she was really in disposal by that stage. And all the amphibious shipping would have just been cast. And the Navy reduced to a, an escort force for the United States Navy with a relatively large, and disproportionately large, perhaps, submarine force. And that sort of sense of being unloved was another contributor, I suppose, to the, the mood on board all the way south. Mm. Again, all of which changed once we realised that we were in a shooting war. Yeah. So if I can just take us back a little bit to the 1st of April. So you were officer of the day and you got a call to the boat. What, oh, what yeah. happened? So we'd been, you know, clearly we'd been watching the news because the, uh, the behaviour of the Argentine, I think at the time we didn't know that there were any military people involved, but they had landed in uh, Gritbeck and were dismantling some of the, the ships there for scrap metal. The Endurance had been sent to uh, investigate. But we had been in the United States in the previous two or three months, which included torpedo firings in the Ortec range and some cracking runs ashore in Florida as well. We got told we were going to be going. First thing I did was ring the first lieutenant. The captain was away. Uh, bearing in mind it was a new captain, remember? Mm-hmm. And Petty Officer of the Day and I had to then start recalling the ship's company on the 1st of April, which was not an easy thing to do. Uh, Conqueror's crew were always a fairly lively bunch. Uh, and several of them just refused uh, to return. So I, I just rang the police and had them all arrested, uh, which is a very convenient way of uh, moving sailors around the country. <laughs> uh, they, 
you know, they arrived looking rather sheepish. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there was huge amount of work to be done. Uh, you know, as the navigator, you might imagine that you know, I was concerned with you know, planning a, an eight and a half thousand mile transit. Uh, there was uh, new threat data to be learnt, bearing in mind we'd only ever looked at sort of shooting at the Russians, and then suddenly we were going to find ourselves confronted by a mixture of American, British, and French, and indeed indigenous built ships. We uh, we took some SBS on board. And that itself was a bit of an adventure because it was regarded as terribly secret that they were there. They were not allowed on the upper deck in daylight, so they had to do all their sort of running about and lifting heavy things at night. And the uh, the officer in charge was a friend of the first lieutenant, so I think he went and stayed with him. But we, you know, we suddenly had all these mustachioed, hairy blokes uh, and piles of munitions to load. I mean, clearly we took a full load of torpedoes, but there were also, you know, canoes and infantry type weapons for these guys and right at the end of our preparation for sailing we uh, we got invited to take some more uh, but they came whether it was still quite so secret I don't know but they they essentially had to get in a bus and drive from Poole to Helensborough and they arrived in the middle of the day in full view of any Argentine spies on the other side of the uh, other side of the lock but I mean to confuse them written down the side of this bus as all these mustachioed, long-haired geezers in camouflage gear and unloading more guns and machine guns and what have you. Uh, written down the side of the bus was Royal Marine Skydiving Team. Must have confused the Argentine no end as to why we had parachutes <laughs> joining a submarine, but there we go. Well, hopefully it did the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was interesting because they, they fitted right in and they all had their own bunks and we'd, we'd reduce the number of people on board to pretty much a you know just the bare essentials normally you'd go to sea with 120 we i think were just under 100 we only had one trainee on board who was the new engineer um, everybody else was landed and all the way south these guys were sort of jumping up and down and exercising and doing stuff and they were conf- they were conf- consuming huge amounts of food uh, and also uh, lots of oxygen, um, and then there was an effect that you know they, they were where these guys were trying to exercise in some of the uh, uh, corners of the submarine. They, we were getting high carbon dioxide issues, uh, so they had to be invited to sort of do it at different times. And we also embarked a doctor, poor chap. He had left the navy three weeks beforehand and was recalled to the colours. He was actually he was actually quite interesting. He, he made some interesting observations because when we were off South Georgia, we had a couple of guys washed overboard and the water temperature was about two degrees C and there was ice in the water. There was you know, bergy bits all around us. And the, the SBS guys who'd been caught in the same wave and they, as they came down, because we couldn't, we couldn't land them straight away, he stripped one of them from the waist down in the, in the control room to remove all his freezing clothing. And he, he was astonished to find that the guy's skin was suffused with blood, which is exactly what you expect not to have. But the, this guy had a different physiological reaction to cold, largely because you know, three weeks before he'd been on a glacier in Norway and had been acclimatised to extreme cold. Whereas our two sailors, well, one of them was washed overboard and picked up by the helicopter from Antrim or Glamorgan and taken there for treatment. 
and we got the other guy into the wardroom heads which were pretty much directly underneath the the main access hatch and just you know, started giving him warm showers and he was you know, deeply chilled and in shock uh, i suppose they were almost our first casualties wow so the trans itself you said the whole you know until you came across the santa fe you the ship's company were kind of under the impression that we're going to turn around at some point so then you see the santa fe and you have some of the team fall overboard how drastically did that change everyone's mindset well very much i mean as i said earlier we sharpened up very quickly um realizing that not only were we going to be doing some shooting but the other side would be doing some shooting against us and it made the control room tauter bearing in mind as the navigating officer i'm one of the two watch leaders so myself and the sonar officer are six on six off pretty much continuously and although actually the, the first lieutenant did take a watch occasionally just to give us a break um not least for the birth of my daughter but anyway you know and the we we just changed the whole mood changed and the other thing which I, I talked about in the past was that was the first time we we realized that one or two people were not as happy about the whole business I mean, happy is not quite the right word but there were there were some troubled guys on board one of the well there were three that stick in my mind one was a senior rating who, who died a few years later he really was very disturbed by the whole thing not because he thought it was I mean, we shouldn't be doing it but he was deeply worried and was very nervous about the whole thing now of course i've already mentioned that we've reduced the ship's company down to a minimum so there was no question of getting him off the submarine you know, where could we put him so we just for a while we just left him as one of the control and watch keepers but it really became quite obvious that he was almost too nervous um, I mean, there was one instant where myself and one of the forehead stokers, we were discussing, you know, the best way to you know, empty some tanks. And, you know, this guy suddenly stood up from his chair, turned around and like with staring eyes, look, listen to the officer, he said to the stoker, we could all be killed. And that had a certain effect upon me because, you know, well, what do you say to a guy who's nearly twice your age? who is being so unexpectedly concerned. I mean, for him, we, we solved the problem by essentially making sure that everything was normal as far as he's concerned. So he just carried on watchkeeping. We had to give him permission to smoke at all times because that calmed him down. And we changed how we, we treated him to a degree. Now, the, the other guy that is worth discussing was a very young chap on his first patrol as a qualified watchkeeper in the motor room, which is the, the aftermost compartment of the submarine. And it's, a, it's essentially, it's a conical endpoint of the submarine, which contains the emergency drive, the electric motor, hydraulic plants, and a few tanks and stuff. And he, at action stations, was in there by himself with the door locked behind him, with no real idea of what was going on, and, you know, he was very frightened, blankly. Um, and um, I suppose, you know, there were a couple of occasions where we all um, felt a bit concerned, but this poor chap was affected quite badly. And uh, the answer for him was to make sure that there were two guys there and perhaps not always the same guy with him. And then 
myself and the solar officer sort of discussing this decided to be uh, a little bit proactive and we started uh, making sure that proper rounds are being conducted so the idea being that one of the junior officers of the watch at the end of the six hour watch will leave the control room 20 to 30 minutes earlier and do a complete walk through the submarine chiefly looking for problems uh, leaks bilge, bilges full of water but actually he became essentially a messenger and just talked to people he would go into the galley talk to the cooks pop his head into the junior rates mess and perhaps the senior rates mess into the ship's office go all the way aft into maneuvering chat to the chaps you know walk the whole length of the submarine speaking to people we started doing things like putting up charts so people knew where we were now of course for many operations that submarines do that's absolutely verboten um but here it just seemed a sensible thing so and again people knew what was happening the engineer going on watch we made sure that there was like a 10 minute brief so he knew what was going to happen in the next few hours and then of course it all we started getting feedback yes he then started telling us any issues i mean the there was always supposed to be this sort of exchange, but it, but it was part of the, for want of a better word, the sort of normalisation of a very abnormal existence. And it seemed to work. And how did that affect you then? How, you know, this is an already stressful situation and you have to be conscious of how this has affected everybody else's mental health. How did you cope with that? I don't think I thought about it in those terms. We were very very busy i mean even on the way south you know some of the things i was i was having to do um just as navigator were pretty demanding of my time and you know just the, the very busyness of you know, the two watch leaders and i suppose you know some of the other senior officers on board meant that i didn't really have time to dwell on that it wasn't until it started to become obvious to me that other people were less than at ease about the whole business and at ease isn't the right expression I wasn't particularly at ease. I was very conscious of the fact that, for example, a friend of mine, before we sailed, we sat down and wrote wills. And I posted mine to my father, just with a note to keep this in the safe, just in case I don't come back. And I think that was the only time I really thought in those terms, although there was one time after the Belgrano, when we were overflown by an aircraft which was described as a Neptune, which is an anti-submarine aircraft. And uh, that, was a, that was a nail-biting 20 minutes or so, because you know, we went deep and fast and did a bit of a runaway. The sound room reported a, a torpedo in the water. And uh, those of us with the stopwatch around our necks started our stopwatches, because we knew the torpedo would run for about seven minutes, if it was a Mark 44 torpedo, which it probably would have been. Yeah, that was a blood-stirring moment. Mm. Well, that was a long seven minutes as well. Yes, yeah, so just sort of watching this hand go round and round on the clock. But, you know, we, we weren't in that terribly deep water. We, we, we could certainly we could go quite quick and we could get reasonably close to the bottom, which is always a good place to be if you're going to do something like that. And funnily enough, they, uh, it's, it's not, it probably wasn't a torpedo. It might just as well have been the, the drag of the towed array describing a very tight circle, uh, which would have caused a noise which might have sounded like a torpedo entering the water. To my knowledge, and I, and I have spoken to one or two you know, Argentine historians, I don't believe that where we were, there was a torpedo dropped in the water. Okay, so mo so moving on a little bit, um, the, as you say, the mood on board had changed and you were trying to help those kind of adjust to their new surroundings as best you could. You were in South Georgia 
you then started to make your way north towards the Falkland Islands? It's about a thousand, just under a thousand miles from uh, South Georgia to East Falkland. And we were actually being sent to the south of uh, East Falkland. Uh, there's an area there called the Birdwood Bank, mm-hmm. uh, which is relatively shallow. Quite a few people sort of made claims about the Birdwood Bank being so shallow we couldn't cross it. Well, we did. And uh, frankly, it, I can't remember the details too much. But you know, we, we didn't really have a problem uh, crossing it if if the Belgrano had been going at speed, or perhaps then there might have been a problem. But you know, after a relatively calm transition from the activities of South Georgia to what we thought was going to be a you know a holding point or possibly even a, a guard point, we we did not know that the Belgrano was at sea. Uh, we knew that she had been a Shua, which is the southernmost city in uh, Argentina and a naval base. And of course it was then that we made the detection when we were still some hundreds of miles away from the island at the end of Terral del Fiego, uh, who's Ilos uh, de los Estados, things you can remember sometimes. <laughs> and um, that didn't really galvanize us. I mean, there, there was a detection of a classic diesel signature from a large merchant vessel. Uh, the toad array display has a whole series of lines on it at an even spacing. And you can work out all sorts of things about you know, how many cylinders it's got and is it a fast or a slow diesel? And it, it was a large you know, merchant vessel mm. where there shouldn't be one. So we headed that way, uh, sprinting and drifting, which means that you go deep and reasonably fast and then you slow down, open the arcs of the toad array and see if the signature is still there, which it was. And then you go fast for a few more hours. And essentially you keep doing that until you make a broadband detection on the bow array. One of the limitations of the toad array is bearing is not very accurate. Uh, The lower the frequency, the wider uh, uncertainty of bearing. And, you know, at, at very low frequencies, it might be plus or minus 20 degrees. The other thing is you don't know whether it's to the left or to the right of your array because the array is is a string and so it's a line array so it doesn't produce a a, a bearing it produces a sort of a, a cone which midships are pretty much circles and then as you go forward or aft they they close down so what you have to do is having made a detection you then have to alter course by a reasonable number of degrees and you if you alter towards or away from the target, that gives you the clue as to whether you've made the right decision or not. And for the, this, you know, this of course was the Belgrano group. And when did we start the transit? I suppose it was, it was probably a day and a half. Uh, and I think it was April the 30th that uh, we made the, uh, the detection and we started to make, you know, we started to obtain broadband detection when we were probably some, a couple of 10, maybe three, 30,000 yards from the ships. And so it was a case of slowing down and being rather more deliberate in your approach. Because mm. um, the, the submarine flat out does about 26 to 27 knots. And at that speed, you can make no detection on your bow array. It's completely swamped with flow noise, uh, unless it's something really loud and really close. And 
having made the detection, we we then because broadband gives you very much better bearing, you know, plus or minus half a degree in some areas. So enough for a fire control solution. But of course, we had to come up and actually identify what we were looking at. And once we realised that we've got a number of ships on on the bearing, uh, we came up some distance away from them. Uh, and imagine the, the, the suspense. And here we are again, coming up to observe the enemy, uh, perhaps. And of course it was. And the, you know, the periscope goes up, the captain does a quick all-round look. Uh, a quick all-round look is essentially very quick. There's nothing going to ram us. And then you do a slightly more deliberate all-round look. It takes about 30 seconds or so, the, the, the deliberate one. Puts the handles up, down goes the periscope. And he reports it. At least four ships in sight. Ooh. And he says, you know, one's a tanker. I'm not quite sure what the others are. Now, because I was, and I admit, still am a bit of a spotter, I, I was given the periscope to identify the ships, uh, which was quite something. And sure enough, there was you know, this big tanker. We were, my recollection is that we were about 160 port on her. So we were astern of her. And as the, you know, and, you know, the captain encouraged me to do an all-round look and then just sweep across the, the ships. And I called out what I could see, you know, big tanker, you know, cruiser alongside Belgrano, and then the two destroyers. Mm. Um, although I actually you know, described them as you know, Belgrano, two Allen and Allen Sumner class destroyers. Uh, they're all Ameri ex-American ships, mm -hmm. except for the tanker. The captain thought he'd seen another vessel, but I, I couldn't see it. And the other observation I made was that there was no radar aerials rotating. So we were close enough to see radar aerials. And I mean, clearly, because we could hear it through or couldn't hear it through the hull, there were no transmissions on sonar. The two destroyers themselves actually had quite a good, if slightly dated sonar, SQS-26 is its number. Certainly, if they had been transmitting on that, one, we'd have known what they were and we'd have known for really quite some distance away what they were. But they were making no such transmissions. We then opened out back to the north so that we were effectively out of sight. And bearing in mind, you know, we're in relatively choppy water with not terribly good visibility. So if we just sort of sneak away a few miles, make a transmission, very unlikely to be detected or seen, uh, not least because they weren't making any transmissions on radar. Uh, but we were probably on the very limit or beyond the limit of their radar detection. Uh, reported what we were, you know, and then we snuck back in. When we resumed contact, the tanker had separated off I mean, clearly been refueling the Belgrano. And they then started a relatively slow, no more than 10 or 11 knots, uh, transit to the north and east, which would have taken them just roughly tangential to the total exclusion zone. Now, we had broken some of the, the signal traffic of the Argentine. And we knew, so I mean, we had, for example, some of their subnotes, which is the the message by which Western submarines uh, are routed. It's essentially a moving box, um, typically about 30 by 50 miles, and you stay inside that as it moves along. Um, so we were aware of some of their submarine movements. And the other thing we knew was that they declared a particular exercise area, a circular one, on the very south of the total exclusion zone. And they were heading for this particular circle. And we had now been given permission 
sometime during the early afternoon, I think it was, of uh, the 2nd of May mm -hmm. uh, to attack the Belgrano. And we observed them go into this uh, circular exercise area. I mean, we'd spent the previous night absolutely underneath the Belgrano. And we, by this stage, had also had our little debate on board as to what torpedoes to use. Now, this was... We had, we had the modified version of Tigerfish, the Tigerfish Mod 1, which was still very unreliable. And naval historians would recognize this sort of story because the Americans went through exactly this in the early years of World War II with their Mark 14 torpedo, which had never been properly trialed. And the, the same was true of the Mark 24 Mod 1 and indeed its predecessor. Uh, it was prone to wire breaks. And when you're doing training firings uh, and there's a wire break, the, the torpedo shuts down and surfaces. And nearly all the torpedoes would suffer some sort of wire break. And we used to spend a lot of time trying to you know, change the speed we were towing the wire through the water and all things like this, trying to improve this. And frankly, you know, we had various instructions of, you know, no faster than four and a half knots or no slower than this and they, they didn't really help but what it meant was that we had never seen the torpedo except in simulations in the process of engaging a target and so another great failure of the torpedo we didn't know about which was the fact that the fuse was unreliable and all of this was addressed after the Falklands War and we ended up with the Tiger Vision Mod 2 which was a very good and very reliable torpedo but you know, it took several years to get this right. So we had a debate on board and it wasn't very much of a debate. Here we are up against a World War II light cruiser, light, not because it doesn't weigh much, but light cruiser has six inch guns and a heavy cruiser has eight inch guns. And uh, she's also armored. So we had two torpedoes. We either had the Tigerfish, which is principally an anti-submarine weapon and unreliable, or we had the old Mark VIII torpedo, which had first been in service in nine, since 1932. So here we were with a 50 year old torpedo. In fact, I do remember looking at the, uh, the, the little record book of the torpedoes life. I mean, the torpedoes we fired, I think had all been manufactured in 1943. And they'd all run several times uh, and been tested, uh, albeit without warheads, you know, with, a, uh, with what was called a blowing head. So we knew we had a really reliable torpedo. Uh, the Mark VIII, although old, was an extremely reliable weapon and was, I think, probably the only torpedo of all the countries involved in World War II that had worked perfectly from day one to day last uh, of, of, the, of the Second War. So it was a weapon we were comfortable with, but it had a relatively short range. Or, yeah, okay, the weapon would run for 12,000 yards before it ran out of fuel. But the book of guidance with all the tables as to how you would fire this thing, it... it it didn't have any table that went beyond about 5,000 yards, although people had fired it at longer ranges. But anyway, so we were going to fire the Mark 8. We had three of those in the tubes. We also had three Tigerfish in the tubes because we had six tubes and we carried out an almost perfect approach. Unfortunately, just at the final moment, the Belgrano had altered course by 180 degrees and was going back into that circular area I was talking about earlier. So we had to restart the whole process. So. I can't remember what the local time was when we sang it, but in UK time was 1956 or something of, something of that order. And again, we just did another perfect approach and everybody was very sharp. The, 
the Belgrano, other than this big manoeuvre, was not zigzagging in any way. It was quiet. I mean, I now know, having having spoken to guys that had served in the Belgrano, they were trying to be inconspicuous. So they were single propulsion or single propeller only, no transmissions. They wanted to look as if they were not a warship, a fishing boat, perhaps. Pretty big fishing boat, mind. Of course, clearly it didn't work because we, we were actually able to identify them by sight. But the, the ideal firing position is on the beam, perhaps just above the beam, and you fire your torpedoes from stern to the bow and at a reasonably short interval, about three to four seconds. And the reason you fire them in that sequence is so that the torpedoes don't have to cross. And the other thing you try and do is get the torpedoes to to run out on the same course as the submarine is going. So it, it, it's a quirk of the maths that if you do that, the and the, so the target speed across is the same as the torpedoes tracking across. The solution is independent of range. So you will hit the target even if you've got really quite gross errors in range. And actually, we got quite close because the captain started to do his final setup too early and the torpedoes were going to have to sort of take a right-hand turn to get towards the Belgrano. And it's the sort of thing you sort of remember until your dying day. Just as the captain is just about to do this exercise, you know, this, this final setup, you can hear the first lieutenant saying, do not fire, which is a very unusual thing to say during a torpedo attack. But, you know, he followed that by saying, you know, gyro angle improving. In other words, if you wait a while, instead of the torpedoes going out 20 right, they'll go out zero, which every, everybody in the, knew exactly what that meant. Uh, and so the captain put the periscope down and the first lieutenant watched the dials on the torpedo course calculator, which is an electromechanical computer. I mean, that's another thing to point out about the Conqueror. Although we had the tone array, we did not have a computer-based fire control system. It was, it, we really were a sort of a 1950s sonar, 1950s fire control system. And we were the last of the boats to be, to be modified. Anyway, so the captain puts the periscope up again, does his you know, standby final bearing, cut that, cut, periscope goes down. The, um, the bearing is com communicated to the fire control system. There's no great jump, so clearly all the tracking is correct. Fire is the next thing you hear and the torpedoes go. In the control room is a, is a little sonar called the underwater telephone, which is a slightly high frequency sonar. And you can actually use it as a sort of a, as a radio, uh, although, albeit very short range. And it's quite difficult sometimes to understand what people are saying, but it is a communication system. But that is always on. And so you can hear the torpedoes running on this and you can hear the engine start and you know, go from deep and throaty to slightly more high-pitched and fading as it runs away. And then the captain put the periscope up again to actually witness the torpedoes hit. And the first torpedo to hit struck the Belgrano um, roughly in the engine room under the after superstructure. Uh, another torpedo hit very close to the bow and just pulled, the, you know, knocked the bow off. And the other torpedo ran on and apparently struck one of the destroyers, but right at the end of its run. So it didn't see enough delta G or uh, deacceleration to set the, the pistol off. Whether that was the first torpedo or the last torpedo, I don't really know. I suspect it was 
it was probably the last of the three to be fired. And we were quite close. So if you work out how far the first torpedo had gone, we were we were probably inside 1,200 yards from the Belgrano. Clearly, if it was the second torpedo, if the first torpedo had missed and it was the second torpedo, we'd have been even closer. And the captain saw the fireball. The other thing was, of course, we heard the bang. And then, you know, the normal thing, the first lieutenant and the officer watch saying, you know, be quiet, be quiet, you know, face your panel, do what you're supposed to do. All those sort of helpful things to say. Then, of course, we heard the second bang. And then we heard a third bang and a fourth bang, which was a surprise because we'd only fired three torpedoes. Um, But what we were listening to, I'm pretty sure, because we were in quite deep waters, well over 2,000 feet deep. We were listening to the direct path of the noise coming straight to us in a straight line and also reflecting off the bottom. And it just so happened that the cadence was about the same. So two explosions and two echoes is what we heard. And then we went deep and opened away, not going hugely fast, but going quickly enough. And I opened up Jane's fighting ship and invited the captain to uh, tell, you know, where, where had the torpedoes hit, sir? And he looked at me, the captain was very quietly spoken, which meant that every time he gave an order in the control room, everybody shut up because otherwise, you know, he wouldn't hear what he was saying. But he, he had a very soothing voice and indeed still does. And he looked at me you know, like a troublesome child and just quietly said, I don't sink cruisers every day, which <laughs> I put it away. <laughs> okay, so where do you, you know, then, then it was there, well, where, do you, where should we go? There was a thought that we would attack the destroyers, but when we returned to Periscope Depth, they were zigzagging towards us and we didn't really know why. So we went deep and fast for a bit longer. It was also about an hour after the sinking, maybe not quite an hour, a very loud explosion. Uh, and there, there before there have been other explosions. We thought people had been trying to dock depth charges, perhaps not knowing where we were, but just to put noise in the water, which would have been a reasonable thing to do. But I, I, we just sort of went deep and fast uh, and the loud noise, the very loud noise. And we, we all just sort of stood to again at action stations. It was probably uh, the death knell of the great ship sinking. But one of the, the I, I mentioned that I'd, I'd met a guy who'd served in the Belgrano. One of the things I think which reflects on the expertise or the professionalism of the Argentine Navy was that he thought he thought we'd attacked specifically at the time that they were doing a watch change because a lot of the guys that were killed were killed by that first hit which struck the ship directly underneath their mess hall where they were doing their sort of watch change briefing and a lot of the people were very badly burnt um, and I would think the majority of the 300 deaths came from there and I suppose the flooding engine room but at the time this guy was off watch and was sleeping naked in his cabin somewhere in the superstructure. So, you know, there's a great crash of the weapons striking, the ship lurches, the lights all go out. And, you know, I mean, I had actually taken this chap to dinner in my my club in London, and I I expressed surprise, and he didn't follow why I was so surprised. I mean, in a British warship, you probably don't even take your shoes off. You know, you just jump straight in your bunk. Because uh, well, you know, submarine, submarines, you're in a sleeping bag anyway, so you know you're you're ready for instant action. And they were not. But I mean, you know, there he was in the darkness, scrabbling about, trying to find some clothes to put on. Um, the ship very quickly started to heal. He did make his way into a life raft, but his life raft with 12 people in it found itself washed up against the damaged bow and very badly punctured and was in a sinking condition so all 12 of them bearing in mind he was probably only in his underwear had then to swim in in south atlantic temperature water 
had to swim to the next life raft. Now, they all made it, but it must have been very close. Uh, and they were picked up some 24 hours later. Do you think that, like you said, that he was sleeping naked, do you think that they felt that they'd done a good enough job of pretending to be a fishing vessel or a merchant vessel that they weren't going to be tracked? Well, I, I suppose they must. They, I mean, it, it must have been a little bit like the experience we had in Conqueror of suddenly realising that this was serious mm. and that we needed to sharpen up. They didn't have the opportunity to for that sharpening experience. I mean, he was a charming fellow. And interestingly, even though he was slightly older, he was 63 and was still serving uh, and was their representative at the IMO meetings that year, which I'm just trying to think, must be five years ago. So after you say you went deep and fast, there was a lot of noise in the water. What, what, did, the, what did Conqueror do for the rest of the war? Well, we had a couple of problems. The communications issue was was one. We we had lost our antenna on the top of our wireless mast, probably striking ice or just something floating in the water. And all that was on the top of the aerial was the sort of copper wire hanging over the side. And we had great problems in reading signals that were coming to us. Uh, we were too far away, really, for the VLF broadcast from rugby. So we were relying on satellites and we were getting very broken signals. We were literally cutting and pasting huge sheets in order to get as many copies of the signal as possible. And then there were still gaps, but you could you could read what the, the message was. It's what in the submarine we used to call the barnstorm signal. As opposed to sending us 30 or 40 signals, they would um, the headquarters would compress it all into one signal. And that was our sort of news sheet. As, as well as uh, you know, tactical and uh, strategic information. But that was a real headache. What we didn't realise was that our signals out, even though they were just going up to the copper wire, the satellite was capable of receiving those, which when you consider it's, what, 18,000 miles away uh, in stationary orbit, was uh, was quite an achievement. But we, we, we'd had a, an HF-based broadcast established from New Zealand, and we could receive that using a floating wire aerial. And we managed to get the floating wire aerial caught around the propeller on one occasion. So we couldn't go faster than eight knots without making a hell of a noise. So we had to surface between Falklands and uh, Argentina, put a, a swimmer in the water. Funnily enough, the same guy who had been washed overboard and taken away to Antrim, he, he'd been returned to us, of course. You know, a, a great rock of a man. Uh, his nickname was Horse uh, because he was just so bloody strong. Uh, and he cut all the, the wire that had been tangled on the propeller and, and came, had to be sort of pulled back onto the casing. I think it was the officer of the watch or the officer who had gone out to help him had been knocked in the water at least once. And Horse was absolutely drained. You know, this, this colossally strong chap was just a reduced to helplessness almost. Uh, not, I mean, he'd been half an hour in, albeit in a, in a wetsuit but in this really, really, very cold water. He got a Distinguished Conduct Medal. I can't think... I mean, it could have been a VC because uh, if an enemy aeroplane had turned up, we'd have dived and left him and the officer on the casing to swim. Uh, and they knew that when they went on the casing, such as it is. And we, we then found ourselves going relatively close into Argentina, essentially just sort of trickling up their 12-mile limit. And we spent some time off an airfield watching aircraft take off. The, the idea was that we could then report, which you know, we did. And then we were told to go and look for uh, one of the Type 42s. To this day, I think I saw her run aground. We were 
it was a relatively calm evening and we didn't we did we couldn't see anything i was on the periscope uh, and there was a great kerfuffle of smoke what i could see beyond the smoke was some cliffs and i'm convinced that that was i think it was hercules was the name of the ship uh, i think that was her running aground because she was she had to be taken into tow we didn't see her properly and it, it's only my supposition and of course, nobody else is looking through the periscope. We uh, we had a good sneak around uh, the Golfo San Matias, which was an interesting piece of navigating because Golfo San Matias is quite large, but essentially the area on the chart, usable chart we had, was about the size of a postcard. So uh, I think it was about five miles to the inch, which is not a particularly useful scale to do um, conventional navigation from. We we did have a satellite navigation system, the, the predecessor to GPS, but you had to be a little bit careful with that because it wasn't as accurate as GPS, nothing like it. And also because many of the charts we were operating from were pre-metric. Um, I always remember that written across the top of East Falklands was the helpful message land believed to lie four and a half miles further south. In other words, it had been fixed by somebody with a sextant, and that was his accuracy. So if you were, essentially, whenever you were near to land, you you didn't ignore your satellite system, but you didn't believe it, because clearly the land might not be where the satellite thinks the land is on the the particular WGS, the World Geographic Survey, puts it. And that was certainly true for these older charts. Another little thing about charts was that uh, one of the major charts between South Georgia and the Falklands was largely blank. There were a few lines where ships had been, and one of the charts also had the encouraging message, surveyed by Lieutenant J. Cook, Royal Navy, 1774. That meant that while we were on that particular chart, we had no sense of confidence in the soundings. After all, all James Cook had 200-odd years before was essentially a piece of rope with a bit of lead on the end. Um, So we rehearsed you know, coming shallow and reversing course. And we ran the echo sounder continuously. And indeed, we did find some pinnacles, which we did come shallow, slow down, turn round. And that was, uh, it was encouraging that the uh, the echo sounder was that reliable, even when we we're going quite fast. That was pretty much it. I mean, we, we observed with interest the war or you know, the, the sort of the, the signals we were receiving about the fighting. Oh, one thing I've, I forgot to mention was uh, after the Belgrano sinking, we were overrun by a ship with two shafts and three blades at night. And this was the same shafts and blades characteristics as one of those American destroyers. So we thought we'd been overrun by a destroyer. So we followed this ship. First light opened out, came up, looked at it, and it was the hospital ship. So good job we didn't shoot. But it was obviously going up towards where our hospital ship was and to the north and east of East Falkland, where the carriers were, uh, perhaps to exchange, well, not no exchange, perhaps to pick up some Argentine wounded who we had. And I think one of the, one of the strong points about the, the British conduct was that we did return a lot of these guys to Argentina pretty quickly. Uh, there's a famous picture of the, the Canberra, the big white whale, it was called, which was a, one of the two... One of the two hospital ships and she transferred some uh, guys to one of our uh, little survey ships that were essentially also running as sort of escorts to the the carriers i mean they had no weapons of any great note and there's a picture somewhere of these argentine wounded and former prisoners offloaded all clutching their their little goodie bag uh, which had cadbury's chocolate and a mars bar uh, and a uh, welcome to um, HQS Canberra or whatever it was on their little sort of docket. One of the effects of that, I'm pretty sure, was that unless the Argentines had been extremely 
sharp to what was going on that they could no longer start telling lies about how well or how how well their forces were doing when all these young men were being returned to their families by the Brits, Mm. either through uh, Uruguay or um, some other port in Argentina, perhaps. Certainly, the the whole of the ship's company of the Santa Fe, after she sank, they were all returned uh, to Argentina. Then we came home, um, and my my daughter was born on the the 13th of May, and uh, the first lieutenant took the watch so that I could, uh, with the evening meal, normally I'd be on the the evening watch after the evening meal, so he he took the watch, said that you you can have a, a glass of champagne and watch the movie which was nice. So that makes me think that one of the differences, I think, between how the Falklands business affected a submarine crew compared to a surface ship crew was, frankly, it was just another patrol to some degree. You know, we were always in defence watches. We just did everything in defence watches and indeed still do. So the disruption which the surface Navy went through just didn't happen in the Falklands for the submarines. Obviously, with the added... um thinking of a oh yeah a we ship. came back to torpedoes <laughs> that's amazing john t i mean i've just, i've been sat here just listening to your uh to, to you tell the tell the tale and hanging on your every word it's been absolutely fascinating hearing your version of events and how how do you feel it's affected you now you know how's your life different because you went to the falklands well, well i don't how's my life different it certainly made me a a slightly more serious bloke and it certainly gave me a perspective about what is really important and what isn't Mm. but some people ask you know did you ever regret any aspect of it and to which the answer is not at all you know do you ever have nightmares about it not at all i know other people did but I, i i don't think it affected me in any negative way whatsoever it sounds like he it gave you a lot of strength. It's you were very busy, you know, from the very beginning, from the officer being the officer of the day that got the call, to <laughs> having to model through the charts. You know, it seems like there was something always that you had to focus on above a lot of other people on board, which may have helped you stay so sharp and focused. Yeah, I think I think there's probably some truth in that because I think you know the navigator, even if he's got a really good navigator's yeoman. The navigator in the days of paper charts was always a busy guy. Uh, and especially when things change. I mean, you know, planning an eight and a half thousand mile transit south. I mean, that in itself was interesting because I'd never been south of the equator before. You know, we made a bit of a joke of that on the way south because I think we, it was about half past 11 at night when we crossed the equator and the supply officer, who was the control room watchkeeper and ship control, he was a card and he, he made a, a broadcast. Yeah, they're about to cross the equator. All plugs to be inserted in the sinks. <laughs> so the stokers all buggered off and started putting the plugs in all the sinks. <laughs> and, Why are you doing that? Was the great cry. Well, because we don't want the Coriolis effect to, <laughs> to, to be buggered up. Yeah, interesting chap he was. Yes, he was one of those chaps who could do the Times crossword in seven minutes, which I always found very annoying. He was also the chap that got into trouble for writing a diary, but he got his own back because he uh, <clears throat> he sued the uh, the Mail on Sunday for some untruths and and won it and used his uh, winnings, is not quite the right word, the money that was paid to him, he, he bought a yacht and he called it the Sail on Monday, which I thought was a good thing to do. That's very good. That is yeah. very good. Sounds like an interesting chap. 
Well, well yeah, I mean, when, when we got back, um, I'd sort of arranged it that we would get into the River Clyde a bit early. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we were able to stop um, and just sort of look at the submarine, which was a bit tatty, and, you know, tidy things up, get the ropes all ready, so that when we went into the, uh, through the Rue Narrows, which is the, I don't know if you've ever been on the Gerloff, but it's quite a tight entrance. And there's a spit of land which nearly closes it off. And going in, it was covered by um, people, uh, you know, TV people filming and stuff. Um, and of course, they didn't realise that when a submarine comes in around the corner at eight knots, uh, it generates quite a lot of wake. Um, one or two of these people were in wellies uh, and suddenly found you know, the wake generated waves which came all the way up to their middle. And then I met my daughter who was there by then, what, six and a bit weeks old. Mm. And that night was the first night that she had ever slept through the night. And I wondered what all the fuss was about. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, that's amazing. And she joined the Navy and now she lives in Australia. John T, this has been awesome. I, uh, I appreciate your time so much for, for taking us through the the tale in the 1980s and being so honest I think about everything that that you kind of felt and have felt since so I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love this episode um and thank you for your time